Welcome everyone to another episode of ISPM Talks. I am your host, Marcela Hoffman Mourão. Since I can remember, I watched the Olympics and the World Cup. The Olympic moment printed in my mind is the 1992 Brazil men's volleyball gold medal in Barcelona. For a long time, I felt these events were perfect, so much so that I would set an alarm to wake up in the middle of the night to follow events during the 2008 Beijing Games while I was living in Brazil. Once I began studying sport management and sports sociology in particular, I started to look into critical theories used to understand sporting mega-events. These two major competitions have become a major contradiction in my life. The sport aspect itself that I love versus all the social issues that cannot be separated from it. And which issues are those, you ask? Well, today the chat addressing this topic is with one of my favorite researchers, Professor Jules Boykoff. Jules is a former soccer player for the U.S. team, but most importantly, he's an academic teaching at Pacific University in Oregon. His areas of research include the politics of sports, mass media politics, social movements, the suppression of dissent, environmental politics, and of course, the games. He's a strong voice raising awareness on social issues amplified during the mega events. In 2019, Jules and journalist David Zarin spent time in Japan doing research regarding the dangers of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics going ahead. Jules often writes articles on major media outlets such as NBC and the Washington Post, questioning the going ahead of the games despite the considerable amount of problems in Japan, from the risk of increasing cases of COVID-19 to the fact that the country hasn't yet recovered from the 2011 earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear disaster that hit the region of Fukushima. The city, by the way, was the location chosen for the beginning of the torch relay of the 2020 edition of the Games this year. The interview you are about to hear is quite special. Though it was conducted by me, it was made with questions produced by the first-year ISPM students in my sport media class. We will discuss mega-events hegemonic power, the lack of gender equality in the Olympic movement, Rule 50 of the IOC Charter, which prevents athletes from activism during the Games, and of course, the Games in Tokyo, scheduled to begin on July 23rd, despite concerns and protests from the Japanese people. So, let's get to it. Jules, again, thanks so much for, for being here. It's I know it's early in the morning there in lovely Portland. Um, the first place I ever visit in the United States was Portland. So, oh, yeah, lovely. Um, anyway, uh, Jules, so we'll start with the questions from the students. These are first-year students in the program. So they had just had classes with sports sociology as well. So they are starting to get into the critical thinking. Um, and we have uh, the first one more about you. So Anton, Anton West, uh, he would like to know how you went from playing professional soccer, representing the U.S. Uh, soccer team, to becoming a journalist, a poet, author, and a lecturer, and, you know, writing about uh, mega events such as the Olympics. Oh, wow. Well, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> um, it didn't happen overnight. It was a slow process. I would say though, when I was playing professional soccer, one of the big pluses, and there were many, was that I had a lot of downtime because we would only practice a couple hours in the morning and then I would lift weights or practice again in the afternoon. And that left a lot of time and a lot of time where you really don't wanna be on your feet. 
And so I've read voraciously during that time period when I was playing professional soccer, I probably read more books during those four years than I did the next 15. I mean, it was, <laughs> and I love reading. I read a lot, but um, yeah. So that was really helpful and kind of figuring out the path. The other thing I did while I was still playing soccer was I started volunteering around the issue of homelessness in Portland. And I was part of a group that went out and worked with predominantly youth identified people under 21 and gave out medical supplies, referrals, condoms. At that time, we gave out bleach kits because we didn't have a good needle exchange program going. And that was the second best thing we could do for those who were using injectable drugs. And it really just opened my eyes to the reality of the streets and also the reality of the beauty of the streets and, the, and individuals who ended up there in, in ways that were really totally out of their control. And so I think all that together kind of helped me think more deeply about politics, not just in the abstract from the books that I was reading, but also in the concrete in terms of the people I was working with in a lot of ways that those, those trends from that time period have continued today. Like I say, I still read a lot and I still work uh, with unhoused folks. And actually when we're done with this interview, I need to scamper off every Friday. That's what I do in the morning. So with adults at this point, but still, so that, that's kind of the short path. I mean, the other thing I guess I would say, like in terms of how I got to the uh, writing about sports mega events prior to that, I had written almost exclusively for the prior decade on how the state and media suppress political dissent. And my friends up in Vancouver, mostly poets and artists and political activists, told me that uh, in Vancouver, Canada, that is, that was hosting the 2010 Winter Olympics, they said, man, you got to get up here because there's a whole lot of suppression of dissent happening and it'd be great if you could cover it and maybe write about it. And so I went up there and I interviewed dozens of people and I figured out what was going on. And I kind of, and I wrote about it too. And at that point I realized, wow, there's actually a lot more going on than just a straight repression story. And so I started digging in then. So that was 2009. Here we are 12 years later. And I feel like that's almost exclusively what I'm doing, at least for this summer while I'm working so hard on the Olympic stuff. So that's kind of the short, short path to where we're at today. Yeah, no. And uh, yeah, I remember, well, I wasn't in Canada. I was in the US in 2009. But then when I moved to Canada for my PhD, uh, some of the work that, uh, that I did with my supervisor as his assistant was related to the Vancouver Olympics and all the issues that surrounded uh, those that event. Uh, which are many, <laughs> from, you know, the natives uh, using their motives, like uh, Harvey calls um, accumulation by dispossession, basically, you know, using their um, their culture to promote the Olympics, but also, you know, the youth that was relocated from downtown Vancouver to make, you know, the city pretty for, for the guests. I'm from Brazil and I, I experienced the same there during the World Cup, you know, let's pretty up, let's remove the, the homeless from, from sight. So it's hard not to get involved uh, when, when you see those kind of things going on um, uh, for these events, for these sports events. Well, and you're raising up a lot of the, the key issues that surround the Olympics and the World Cup that a lot of people don't think about because we tend to focus on the sports, which are amazing. These athletes are absolutely incredible, but you're absolutely right that those are some of the things, the displacement, the, the use of particular marginalized folks to make a profit. Um, Canada's in British Columbia is really interesting in that way, in the sense that 
it's unceded territory. The guy named Douglas, who was supposed to be signing all these treaties with the indigenous peoples mm -hmm. up and down the west coast of British Columbia, just kind of stopped doing it partway through. And so one of the big motifs there, one of the big themes and slogans was no Olympics on stolen native land because it hadn't been settled, if you will, by, by treaties. And you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought in the World Cup because some of the dynamics that I'll talk about with the Olympics most assuredly apply to the World Cup as well. I had the good fortune of living in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil from 2015 and then in 2016 during the Olympics and saw some of the exact same things that you're describing around the World Cup happening again with the Olympics only two years later. Yeah, yeah. I, I still cannot fathom the fact that a country such as Brazil hosted back-to-back -to, -back to mega events uh, <laughs> and spent all that uh, money on them. And it's, um, yeah, it's hard to grasp that. And I'm, I mean, in my hometown, Porto Alegre, most of the projects that were promised, they are still not done to this day. Mm -hmm. So, wow. yeah. And the money is gone. The money is far from gone. Of course, of course. Well, it's interesting. Actually, Brazil really raises up the issue of the time lag between when these places are bidding on the Olympics and then when they're yeah. staged. First of all, there a lot can happen and a lot did happen in Brazil, obviously, politically, mm. between the time of getting these uh, games uh, ascribed to them and then actually carrying them out. Um, and also, like a lot of the people that signed the contracts in the beginning that start getting that money flowing, they're long gone. Those elected yeah. officials are long gone by the time the Olympics come. Yeah, I did. Uh, when I when I was still doing my PhD research, I focused uh, on the city of Porto Alegre and and the mayor at the time, he was up for re-election. So he used the World Cup projects as part of his campaign. And then the moment that he was indeed re-elected and yeah, it was obvious that those projects were not going to be done. He said, no, those projects were never for the World Cup. They would benefit, but I never promised them. And then I dig on all the documents and all the documents had like for the World Cup or big stamps about the World Cup. So it's just the proof was right there in the public documents because then he just, I'm not going to commit to finish them because I can't. So yeah, it is a fascinating case indeed. So Anton West still has another question because he says you write and comment on very controversial topics. Um, and I was wondering, how do you deal with uh, potential negative feedback from readers and the public? Hmm. Oh, thank you, Anton. That's a thoughtful question. Um, well, yeah, I do because I'm a political scientist. So I tend to sniff out the politics and whether it's politics, there's controversy. And with these mega events, there's also a lot of money flowing. So you can bet people really care deeply about them. And so, yes, you're absolutely correct. I have gotten quite a bit of pushback. The way I tend to approach things, though, is um, because I am a social scientist, everything that I do is evidence driven. So I can point to the facts that I'm building my, my case on. And all of my research that I do, I try to take elements of it and convert it into these uh, more, I guess, accessible essays for places that people can actually, I, I mean, literally accessible, like you don't have to have like special um, consideration through a, through a university to, uh, to get them. You can just like go online and find them. And so I like all of that work is built on the social science work that I do that's always evidence-driven. And so, you know, that's kind of the way I've approached it. But yeah, I mean, I get pushed back all the time. You know, that's the thing about social media. There's mm -hmm. a lot of like really mean people out there and mm -hmm. maybe they're not mean, but like on social media, they certainly feel yeah, the right. license to do so, especially when they're anonymous. And how do I deal with it? Like, to be honest, I just ignore most of it. I, if it's an anonymous account, 
coming at me, then, you know, I don't, I don't really feel like I should have to respond. And, and I'm not very good at responding, honestly, like on the one platform, I guess I use really is Twitter. And for, to my discredit, I probably don't like sniff out the mentions. So who knows what people are really saying. <laughs> um, but I also don't want to get like dragged down in, in negativity. I don't want to get too high or too low. I just kind of try to proceed using facts, using evidence and, and adjust as, as needed. You know, the first question was about like what it was like as an athlete. And like, in a lot of ways, when I was an athlete, there was no room for self-doubt. You just had to like believe so deeply in your own abilities. Whereas when you're a scholar, self-doubt is really helpful. You know, you're always questioning your assumptions. You're always questioning your evidence. You're always triangulating. You're always making sure that you're doing it right. And self-doubt can really help lead to better research, better writing. So I sort of see very sharp differences in that way with soccer and uh, the academic life. Although there's also some similarities. I mean, you got to work really hard. Um, there are days when you don't feel like doing it. You still got to dig in there and do it. And there's sort of a grind to it that is familiar for, to me, the academic grind to, to soccer. And so, um, yeah, there are some similarities and differences. Now getting into the, well, the current Tokyo 2020 and 2021 Olympics um, set, to, set to happen as of now. Um, we have some students asking questions regarding that issue. Uh, Marius, Marius Bekiri asks about, with all the miscalculations about medical workers, uh, high budget funds and the low vaccination rates, which are still very low uh, in Japan, what do you think would be the wake up call to prevent the Olympics from causing more damage than good? And should, shouldn't there be always an ethical moral element to avoid this kind of situations? Well, first of all, yes, I believe there should be ethical and moral considerations. And that points to accountability with these organizations that run these mega events. In the case of Tokyo 2020 Olympics, the International Olympic Committee, as well as local organizers. So in order to get a certain ethical metric, you need to have accountability. What would it take to ingrain that kind of accountability? What would it take to wake people up to the reality of what's happening in Tokyo? It seems to me the only thing in the short term is if there were a massive uptick in coronavirus cases inside of Japan. That seems to me to be the one thing that could really tank the whole affair. One other possibility, which is sort of stems off of that, is if we start to see athletes coming into the country and testing positive for coronavirus. We've already seen um, two people from the Ugandan contingent who came in who had been vaccinated and everything who tested positive for coronavirus once they arrived in Japan. And they were able to go on, one of them at least, was able to go on to Osaka. So if you're in Japan, think about this. The person arrived in Tokyo, took a test, uh, tested one tested positive, they quarantined that person. The other person tested negative, even though they were with that other person, they threw them on a bus, drove them down the country to Osaka. Now, if you're from Japan, you're thinking, wait a second, how did that happen? Everybody should have been quarantined. They should have done intensive contact tracing. It did not inspire a lot of confidence on the part of organizers of the Olympics that they're going to do this right. So at this stage, there's a whole lot of momentum, one might say inertia, pressing toward having the Olympics no matter what. But if there's a serious outbreak of coronavirus, that could be the one and perhaps only deciding factor at this point. Yeah, which is a shame that he has to get to that point. 
um, for for it to for them to realize to be the wake up call. Um, you know, putting more lives at risk because of this. Uh, do and then um, uh, Leonard Lazarevich uh, concerning this issue, his final question is: Do you think that staging the games, despite all these uh, issues and criticism, could in the end backfire and and tarnish the IOC image? That's a great question, and I do think it's quite possible, depending on how things go. As someone who studied the political history of the Olympics, I very much view what we're seeing right now as the greatest crisis that the International Olympic Committee has faced in decades. I'm not only talking about the debacle in Tokyo, but when you combine Tokyo with Beijing, which is less than eight months away, human rights nightmare, just objectively speaking, doesn't fit with the charter of the Olympic movement. And so there's going to be plenty of pressure on the International Olympic Committee then. So we have this intensified little period where people are seeing the Olympics in a new light and it's not pretty. So if they can get through that crisis, which won't be easy, um, maybe they can get back on their feet. But I think what's undergirding your question is the possibility that the International Olympic Committee and the Olympics more generally could sustain some serious reputational damage. Again, a lot of it comes down to what happens in Tokyo. And if we get a COVID super spreader situation with this Delta variant, which is more transmissible and God willing, that's not going to happen. But if it does, it could definitely undermine the power of the Olympics moving forward. Yeah. Do you see countries, nations uh, still having to having the time and the momentum to say, maybe we're not going to send our delegation? It's possible. I mean, right now, uh, so it's what, June 25th? Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just checked on this. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, what is it really? Yeah, it's 25th. Okay, it's been a whirlwind, let me tell you. Mm. Um, June 25th, we still have teams that are entering the country. And so it's quite possible that if there were a serious outbreak that the teams could just put the brakes on and say no. I mean, if we rewind to March, 2020, so a year plus ago, when coronavirus was just emerging, March 11th, it was declared a, a global health pandemic. And the International Olympic Committee was saying, oh, no, we'll be fine. Uh, we're going to keep going with the event. And in fact, just a side note, since I'm talking to you from the United States, the president of the International Olympic Committee, Tomas Bach, actually stated at that time that they weren't uttering the words postponement or cancellation in any of their high-level discussions in part because people like Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, was saying that this thing was going to blow over by April 2020. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, Mr. Trump was totally incorrect about that. But the fact that the International Olympic Committee was listening to somebody like him was pretty jarring for a lot of us that were following this. Like, what? Why would you listen to him when you have the World Health Organization at your left elbow and the United Nations at your right elbow and you're listening to Donald Trump? Um, anyways, the reason why I bring all that up is to say, the only reason that, as far as I'm concerned, that the Olympics were postponed by a year is because athletes stood up and said they weren't going to go. At first, it was just sort of sporadic athletes from around the world, the Greece, uh, the United States, Canada, elsewhere, that were saying, we don't, we're not going to go. We're, we're really wondering if we should have the Olympics in 2020. Then that was followed by the Canadian National Olympic Committee stating in public that they would not send their athletes if the games transpired in summer 2020. 
That was essentially a de facto boycott. They were quickly followed by other countries like Australia, Germany, Portugal. And at that point, the International Olympic Committee had really no choice but to postpone. And they immediately did after saying that they weren't even talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so actually, I think their athletes have a lot of power in this situation to take it back to your, to your question. And if they were to speak out with a, with a strong and unified voice on this, you could see the postponement again, perhaps for one more year. I mean, to be honest, I was always a little surprised that the International Olympic Committee didn't postpone for two years to begin with, yeah. because after all, they could have just said, we're sitting back on our traditions until the mid 1990s, the Olympics both happened in the same year. They could have just said, you know what, we're going to get back to that old tradition. In 2022, there'll be two Olympics. They could have just not had to worry about how fast the pandemic got behind us in the rearview window and just moved on. Obviously, they didn't do that. And so now they're in this tough situation where the pandemic has not gone away, where it's actually increasing in many parts of the world and in many parts of the world that are actually planning on sending athletes. So it's a really complicated and, and potentially dangerous situation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and then here we have uh, two students uh, bringing up kind of the same idea. So it's Konstantin Fallenbach and Niklas uh, Selpal. Um, they mentioned uh, in one of your pieces, you talked about the extremely lopsided contracts the IOC signs with the host country. It's the only reason why the IOC can't either cancel or move the Olympics to another country, or, or is there are there other reasons why don't they do it? And we kind of already mentioned this a little bit, but uh, if you could also explain what are these lopsided contracts and why would Hosidis agree to sign these contracts? Yeah, that's a, that's a key point. And it's so interesting to see it become much more discussed right now because of what's happening in Tokyo. But it's long been the case where we've had these lopsided contracts that are written in ways that advantage the International Olympic Committee. In prior years, it was mostly discussed over the fact that these host city contracts put the local host on the hook responsible for all cost overruns. Why that's a big deal is because every single Olympics has cost overruns. There was a study out of Oxford University that you might have seen that looked at every single Olympics going back to 1960 and every single one for which there is reliable data, they found that there were cost overruns. In other words, they said it was going to cost this much, but they cost Mm. a lot more through time. And so that's the way it would often come up. Well, these host city contracts, they're not just lopsided, they're often signed by people that are long gone, like we were talking about before, they're long gone by the time the contracts come due, like they're, they're on their political high horse to somewhere else. And the last reason why they're written in the way they are is because they're written by political elites. Like, it's not like people like me and you uh, get to get in there and, and sign these contracts. They don't look to people at the grassroots. The people that push forth Olympic bids are political and economic elites who are well-connected. And not to be you know, too crude, but many of them are also perfectly well-situated to benefit if there's an Olympics, mm-hmm. whether it's in Tokyo, whether it's in Rio de Janeiro, or whether it's in London, it doesn't matter. And that's, and that's why you know, you've never seen a grassroots bid for the Olympics where like poor and working people like really wanted the Olympics to come to their town and they put their minds together and put forth this bid. It just doesn't happen. And so, when you have essentially a privileged sliver of the global 1% making decisions around these issues, this is the kind of situation that pops out. And what's fascinating to me is about like, there's a lot of critical scholarship. I'm sure that you're, you're reading as part of your studies 
that have long pointed out these lopsided yeah. contracts, long pointed out these ingrained problems in the Olympics. But right now, because of the way that Tokyo is unfolding, we're having more and more people just kind of treated as common fact that the Olympics are in large part about money. And before, like even like a few years ago, even the Rio Olympics, it was kind of hard to make that argument without people pushing back and saying, oh, it's so much about the athletes, this and that and the other. And it is, of course, a little bit about the athletes as well. But Tokyo is making it very clear that the real driving factor with the Olympics, whether we like it or not, is money. It's really stripped the veneer off the Olympic project in ways that everyday people, you don't have to be a sports scholar, you don't have to be taking studies on the topic, but everyday people who read the newspaper now are seeing that money is really driving this process. And it's not doing very well to the last question for the for the reputation of bodies like the International Olympic Committee or, or FIFA. Yeah, and, and you see it happening. I mean, the whole reason Beijing is hosting the, the Winter Olympics is because a lot of the European countries, the population was consulted, which is it's still rare, but it happens. And they say, no, thank you. We do not want these events. And then, okay, who is going to host the 2022 mm -hmm. Olympics? So Beijing, yeah, maybe we can do it. I mean, you start having nations. And sadly, these are not the developing country nations. Uh, it's still, uh, the as I said, in Brazil, I'm afraid that at the time when the bidding was put forward, if the population, the Brazilian population was consulted, they would have still voted yes, because they don't have the right information. The media is working with all these elites, selling this idea, you know, that these events are great for the country. Uh, so the vote would have seen, still been yes. But in nations uh, here in Europe, where there is a little bit more of awareness, you see them starting to say, no, thank you, we cannot host these events. Yeah, that's such a great point. And, and it's really worth emphasizing that because there is a deficit of democracy kind of built into the bidding around these Olympics, that when local bodies do decide to instill some measure of democracy, whether it's like a referendum ballot measure like you're describing, cities are time and again these days saying, no thanks, we've heard about the, uh, these games now. And what it does is when you put it on the ballot, it forces an honest public conversation where maybe you can even cut through some of the media that might be inclined to support it. If you can have a discussion about it, people aren't liking what they're hearing. And you're exactly right that in the only reason Beijing's hosting the 2022 Olympics is because all these other cities dropped out, whether it was Stockholm, Sweden, whether it was Oslo, Norway, whether it was Munich that had one of the referenda that you were talking about or Davos, St. Moritz that also had one. They all said no, and that left Beijing and Almaty, Kazakhstan, yeah, and neither of them are known as bastions of democracy, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so the International Olympic Committee, rather than saying, you know what, we're going to slow it down, we're going to try to like get some more bids on the docket. No, they've just pushed ahead and they went with Beijing, even though Beijing is not exactly known as like the snow capital of the world. And there's a decent chance that they're going to have to use fake snow, fake snow at these Olympics, which obviously has environmental implications in terms of sustainability and so on so so yeah but at the root of it you're exactly right and that 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 there's the lack of democracy and when democracy does pop up it often says no i personally think that moving forward every single place that has an olympics bid put forth should also have a public vote on it now obviously no one's listening to me over at the international olympic committee because they just assigned <laughs> 
uh, they're about to like rubber stamp the 2032 Olympics to Brisbane. And I mean, this is like flying in the face in, of democracy in ways that are kind of jaw dropping, even for somebody like me who's followed this for a while. Like there's been almost no public conversation around Brisbane hosting 2032 games, let alone having a referendum where people could actually vote on it. The guy who's pushing it forth is a guy named John Coates, who's the vice president mm -hmm. of the International Olympic Committee. He's on the he's on the he is, runs the Australian Olympic Committee. He is the guy that orchestrated this new process where they don't have to bid against countries. You can have like a fast track. And guess what? Who got on the fast track? His preferred city in the country where he lives. Like, I mean, my goodness, it like couldn't be much more curious and maybe even corrupt on its surface than it is. And yet this is how they've responded to the situation your professor has des uh, correctly described here, where there's fewer and fewer cities that are keen to host the Olympics. What do they do? Like look under the hood of the, of the car and see like what's going on. No, they don't. They just like put a little piece of tape over the check engine light and ram ahead as quickly as possible. So that's what we're definitely seeing right now. Yeah. Alec Virko, he actually mentions John Coates in his, his question. He mentions that he, Coates stated the Olympics will take place even if Tokyo were under a state of emergency order and local medical professionals recommended against staging the games. And mm -hmm. then let me just add to his question. It reminds me so much of a former <laughs> FIFA, uh, Jerome Vacal saying, alcoholic drinks are part of the FIFA World Cup, so we are going to have them. Excuse me if I sound a bit arrogant, but that's something we won't negotiate. And then Brazil mm -hmm. changed its law to allow uh, the selling of beer. So it sounds very similar, these two quotes. And he's asking, how do you feel about such attitude? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, and the, the way I'll answer it is, you know, I've done a lot of uh, media work in Japan, like television, radio, um, print media. And I've had a few television interviews where the presenter, who's like a very button up, you know, wearing a suit, very serious, and just comes at me with the first thing that they say is that quote that you just said from Coates. They say then another quote from Thomas Bach that said the people in Japan are especially suited to deal with the situation because of their history, which kind of was like, wait, you mean, cause we got like bombs dropped on us, nuclear yeah. bombs. So that was taken as really offensive. And the third one was Richard Pound saying that quote, barring an Armageddon, the Olympics were going to go on. Those three quotes were considered so astonishingly arrogant that even button up journalists who are trying to interview me like in a serious way couldn't help but just say what they were and then just stare at me and just like want me to respond like there's no question they were just like, can you believe these people like said this to us so the, the sheer arrogance of it is not going well in in Japan and you know coats, if you look if you scratch the surface and sniff a little bit it's odoriferous and not necessarily in a good way. You know, this is a guy who openly will tell you back in 2000, uh, for around when they were bidding for the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, he, on the eve of the vote, shuffled $70,000 to two countries that had voting IOC members from Uganda and Kenya. Mm -hmm. Just on the night before the vote, here you go, $70,000 for your Olympic program, all right? It's not so that you vote for us. Well, guess what? The next day, uh, they win the vote. They just edge out Beijing, actually, for the 2000 Olympics. And he just says, you know, there was nothing shady about that. He didn't think it was weird at all. It's just what you do. Sometimes you share money with other Olympic committees. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, he's not just unpopular in Japan. He's unpopular to people that have ethics that have been following him 
for a long time. And, and so, yeah, you're raising up a, a guy and it's not just him. I mean, right now the International Olympic Committee is so incredibly unpopular in Japan. There've even been street protests as you might've been following mm. around this. And, you know, Japan isn't exactly known for having monstrous mobilizations in the streets, but enough is enough. They actually had a, an effigy of your, your friend, John Coase with, a, you should check it out online, a picture of him with like a big scary skull on the top mm. and it's supposed to be sort of like a grim reaper figure. That's how John Coates is seen, at least by sectors of the activist community that aren't at all happy the Olympics are going on. Yeah, yeah it says a lot when you have uh, the Japanese people indeed going outside to the streets and, and protesting and, and saying, yeah, we had enough of this. So it is definitely... That should be the wake-up call, <laughs> actually. Yeah. But, uh, well. Um, now, regarding uh, the situation with the former Prime Minister Yoshiro Mori and his sexist uh, comments, um, in the end, he resigned uh, due to mounting pressure. So he wasn't sacked by the IOC. He resigned. So Ramsey Togni, uh, he asks, would it not have been better if Modi had been demoted and having to work under an answer to the woman that took his place, Seiko Hashimoto? Hmm. That's really creative and, and really interesting. I've never heard that before, but it's a very creative approach. Hard to know whether that would be better, but I, I, I admire your creativity very much. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, she's a woman, but she she's still working with the the whole idea that we're going to have the Olympics in Tokyo. So. Well, and she was kind of his protege as yeah. well. I mean, she kind of considered him a father figure. She yeah. said this in public. Don't take it from me. Take it from her. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, just because you put a, a woman in charge doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really mean the direction of the what's happening. But but it is important in a, in a highly you know sexist. Um, outburst that he had that he gets some kind of repercussion for it there should be something yeah and then still on this topic Alec again Alec Virko he says long before uh, Modi Baron Pierre de Coubertin had already said an Olympiad with females would be impractical uninteresting unesthetic and improper this of course was in 1896 so nevertheless do you wonder how are these people still in the IOC system their names are still there and what needs to happen to achieve uh, gender equality in Olympic sports? Yeah. Well, yeah. And first of all, the Baron wasn't just saying that Baron Pierre de Coubertin in the 1890s. He was also saying it all the way through the 1920s into the 30s. So this is after, for example, women got the right to mm. vote in the United States. So he wasn't just uh, behind his times. Stick in the to 1890s. his opinion. He was consistently wrong. Um, you know, what does it take? Honestly, you just set quotas and you say 50% of the women on the IOC, 50% of the members of the IOC are going to be women. 50% of the athletes are going to be women and you just do it. I mean, it's actually like not that hard mathematically. It is hard politically because of the old boys network that you have to sort of dismantle to get there. But if the International Olympic Committee truly were committed to gender justice, they would just make that happen in a heartbeat. It just takes a little bit of basic math and you're there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, but sometimes, yeah, that word quota is also, people have a, uh, it's the same thing with feminism. They hear feminism, they hear, they hear quota, uh, they tend to, 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 well, let's say people in power, the white uh, masculinity uh, group tend mm -hmm. to react. But I completely agree with you. And quota mm -hmm. is necessary, is important until equality is achieved. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a really good point. Quota is often taken the wrong way by my people, the white men. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so like, let's call it like 
the fairness principle or something yeah. like that. I don't know. You know, I'm just yeah, taking it out of my head. We'll call it the justice quote, the, the justice situation. There you go. All right. We're just following yeah. the justice situation, which means 50-50. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, in the Rokas uh, Savelievas, he asks about the IOC Rule 50. So the athletes not being able to voice their opinion on political issues, even though Olympics, he says sometimes, but they are a political event. So as you are, as a former player, uh, how do you feel? Of, well, I know how you feel about the rule, but imagine you as a player, uh, not as a political scientist, but as a player having to, to, to deal with that. Yeah. Well, first, let me say, when I was 19 years old playing for the U.S. Olympic soccer team, um, I'm really glad I didn't speak out on politics because I wasn't ready. Like mm. I was just forming my thinking. And so let's just say, I don't think that every single person should be an athlete activist. I don't think every Olympian should be an athlete activist. I certainly wasn't ready for it. And I cringe to think what I might've said had, had mm. someone forced me to speak on politics. That said, I think that athletes who are there in terms of their knowledge base, in terms of their desire to become an athlete activist and speak out on these issues, very much should be able to. Rule 50 in the Olympic Charter flies in the face of Article 19 in the United Nations documents around freedom of expression. Um, and so like, you can't tell somebody like the IOC is trying to do with athletes when and where you can speak freely about particular issues, that is considered a human rights breach of this Article 19, as I mentioned, about around free expression. I think it's pretty obvious why it's happening because we're living in what we might call the athlete empowerment era. And there's all these vibrant social movements that have created space for these individuals to get smart about the issues and then be willing to speak out. You really do need those vibrant social movements creating space for this. Yep. And then you have athletes that have been speaking out on Black Lives Matter. And so the International Olympic Committee has decided to double down and say that you're, you can't even have Black Lives Matter like on your shirt. You can't if you're on the podium or in your event because that's considered political. So I think it's just hypocritical in a lot of ways because the International Olympic Committee is very political. I mean, sheesh, if you look down the list of their worldwide sponsors, so many of those sponsors are political or they affect our politics in different ways. I mean, just look at Airbnb, for example. Mm. Airbnb is an Olympic sponsor. And because of their business model, they decimate local communities by taking housing stock, this rental housing stock, and converting it into really short-term rentals, thereby driving up the prices of the, the now uh, less available rental space in the city. And it contributes to gentrification. It contributes to increased uh, housing prices, uh, rental prices for working people. And that's all political. And in fact, the way they got all their rights to go into different cities, they had to work the political system. So mm -hmm. Airbnb is super political and the International Olympic Committee has no problem with it. An athlete wants to say that Black Lives Matter or wants to speak out against violence against women, want to be part of that Me Too zeitgeist. They're all of a sudden political in a way that the International Olympic Committee doesn't accept. So I think undergirding it all is a certain sense of hypocrisy. Yeah, absolutely. To, to finish off, so uh, Ivan uh, Dumaduk, he, it's a difficult last name to pronounce. I apologize. I probably didn't do it correctly. Um, he asks if you, in the end, if you do like the idea of, of Olympics, should it still be a thing? And if so, 
how should it be a thing if you have, you know, cities saying, no, we don't want to host, uh, where would athletes go? Because for some sports, the Olympic is the pinnacle, so not the World Cups uh, matter. So would a situation like what's happening, this polycentric system with different cities hosting at the same time, what do you think is the future? Or should we still continue doing the Olympics? I believe in the spirit of the Olympic project, the way it's carried out under these current conditions of being just a gigantic spectacle is untenable for the future. Um, so something drastic needs to be done. Something needs to be refashioned in terms of how the profits and the revenues flow to athletes. These workers are largely unpaid. They're athlete workers is where the way I think we ought to think about them. And right now we have a situation where it's trickle up economics and we need it to be the very opposite where the people that are actually doing the work get paid. And I support moves to change the Olympics, to make them maybe a little bit smaller for starters. They don't decimate a city quite as badly. And second, figure out ways of shuffling the money to athletes. If you start with those two things, then you can go pretty far in terms of reforming. Thank you so much, Jules, for taking the time and maybe to be continued. Maybe we do this again um, okay, another time. Good. I really all appreciate right. it. All, all the best and take care. Stay safe. Thank you, Professor. We'll see you down the road. Okay. <laughs> Often the voice of political scientists such as Jules Boykoff goes unheard, and the narrative of the purity of sport mega-events impedes a critical conversation. However, keeping in mind the ISPM program strives to encourage the students to become game-changers, there will always be a space in our classroom to raise all aspects that surround these events. As Jules said, the beauty of it is there and there are ways to ensure it remains beautiful, but also fair. Fair to athletes, to fans, and to host communities. So let us watch this upcoming edition, keeping in mind mega events must improve rather than impose themselves. And most importantly, hoping that all involved and the Japanese population will stay safe. For now, you as well, take care and stay safe. Cheers.